with currency as with faith, knowing the real thing is protective. It's essential. Today we're going to begin a new sermon series, just three weeks. As those of you who are part of Village Family know, we finished our six-week series on six chapters in the book of Acts last week where we examined the birth and growth of God's church and looked for special insight for us today. Today, beginning this Sabbath and for three weeks until Christmas Sabbath, we're going to focus in on one verse. Three Sabbaths, one verse for worship services. And the, and the verse is this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at that verse. Study it. Examine it for a moment. It, it's, it's a trumpet flourish of, of comfort and hope for this season. This morning, we're going to drill down on just one word. One word. Instead of a chapter, like we did in the book of Acts, one word is going to be our focus. And that is word. The word. That's all we're going to look at. Next Sabbath, we'll look at another two words. Became flesh. Friday night Christmas communion, we'll look at dwelt among us. And then on the Sabbath Christmas service, we will look at the last part, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of, of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're going we're gonna to camp out right here, and uh, we're going to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You know, John is unique in his telling of the Christmas story. He does it in one verse. Matthew takes two chapters to do it, and it includes, well, the genealogy and angels visit to Mary, and then the visit of the wise men. You know those stories in the Matthew. And then Luke, his birth narrative is the most extensive. It includes two visits from the angel, and we learn that his name is Gabriel in the book of Luke. It, it includes three songs, one sung by an angel choir. It includes Mary's visit to Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph's trip to, to Bethlehem. But the Gospel of John... Well, with the exception of Mark, who doesn't say a word about the birth of Jesus, the Gospel of John, his account, is by far the shortest. One verse. Jesus' birth. The narrative, the narrative of, of his coming. But surprisingly, even though we're going to spend the next three weeks on it, we'll barely scratch the surface. This amazing verse Scholars have long pondered the use of that word, logos, in that verse, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Logos, that's the word for word in the Greek. And that word, logos, was not new with John. He didn't coin it for the first time in history. It was around. It had been around for several hundred years among the Greek philosophers, logos was the essential starting point. It was, the, it was what you would call the principal force or, or the, the origination and the one that directed, the thing that directed existence. But John wasn't a philosopher, nor was he writing his story to academics. 
the philosophical approach and significance to this word, word, logos, would have been about as clear to John, the apostle, when he was writing this book as, well, nuclear reaction is to me. I I know the edges of what that word means, nuclear reaction, but I really don't know how it works at all. And I think it was probably the same way with John when he thought of this word logos. He wasn't interested in Greek philosophy. In fact, John's understanding of logos is a polar opposite to what was common in his day. Greek mythology pictured the gods as distant and detached, not interested in human welfare and well-being. They were unaware, unconcerned, uncaring about what was going on here on planet Earth. That was the Greek mythology. John's logos word was so passionately involved, so concerned for us that his logos became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week. Uh, So let's step back again, back to this word logos. Probably the most important uh, to our grasping the understanding of this word for John and for us today is to look just for a few moments at its Old Testament roots, logos. Well, in the Old Testament, when it used that word, the Old Testament written in Greek was called the Septuagint, but the same word in Hebrew and uh, for word, it was used, whenever it was used, it was often in terms of a powerful agent of God accomplishing His will. For example, this verse, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. We all know that one. By the word, the heavens were made. When God speaks, something happens. There's activity. God's word is divine action. God's word is the activity of God, which is sort of what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verse number 11, where he says, So is my word, you know this one, that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So you see here, the word is creative. The word is powerful. The word is life. Word as a title also suggests a revealing, a showing. I kind of like the way Leon Morris, a Bible scholar and commentator, what he had to say about this on the, in his commentary on John. He says, a person's word is the means whereby he reveals what he's thinking. That's true, isn't it? I mean, through our words, we express ourselves. You know what I'm thinking by the words I say. Words are the way we know. Words are the way we communicate everything. Words are how you know me and I know you. When you think of me, you probably think of sweet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, no, when you think of me, you think of words. You know, words come to your mind. Who knows what? You think you just hold that to yourself. But words come to your mind when you think of me. When I think of you, I think of words as well. Generous and, and thoughtful and smart. Those are the words that come to my mind. So uh, that's what happens when, it, when God calls himself the word. 
I like the way another biblical scholar, C.H. Dodd, expresses this thought. He said, the word of God is his thought, if we may put it so, uttered so that men can understand it. I like that. That's his thought uttered so that men can understand it. God isn't some kind of a distant being that's indifferent to our cares and doesn't care about our needs. No, our God is a God who reveals himself. The word is not just an expression of truths about God. Leon Morris, again, on this point, he says, the knowledge of God that the word brings is not merely information, it is life. I like that. It's not just information, it's life. It's not a mere principle. It's a living being. And not just a living being, this one is a source of life itself. Not just a personification, it's a person. It's a person that's divine. The word is nothing less than God. John's first words are just like a flourish of of meaning as he says with words that are bigger than words. He's trying to explain to us who this one is and he stuns us with his first verse, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was not from the beginning. He was in the beginning. In other words, before time, before space, before the universe, before, well, I don't know, before eternity and history, he was there. He was He existed. He was. He has always been. There has never been a time when the Word was not. That's what John is saying. This week, we we as a nation mourn the loss of our beloved leader and president, George H.W. Bush. His passing, I don't know how you, how it went for you, but for me, it gave me pause to recall an earlier era, (laughs) less quarrelsome, um, more cordial, more generous than typifies life today. That's what I thought about when I thought of George H.W. Bush. And I also thought, as I scanned that first row of that wood bench in the National Cathedral, for the funeral of our 41st president of the United States, all our commanders in chief sitting in a row. That's not very often when you get all those people together. Can you imagine the security in that place? <laughs> Four of the five right there. And uh, the other one, George Bush, was on the other side sitting in with his family. So it made five living presidents. 45 have served our country. Five are still alive. Others have gone the way of all humanity. And I got to thinking about that. Isn't it true? That that is the way we all go with the exception of one, Jesus Christ, who is, who was, and who will always be. He's eternal. Jesus Christ, the Word, And that's what John says in these very first words of his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word. 
The word was there. The words take us back, take us back, back, back to the vastness of eternity before, before anything was. And it takes us back, back to the book of beginnings, Genesis itself, where God reveals himself to all humankind. And it starts the same way that John, John starts his gospel. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says the same thing. In the beginning, in these first words, were introduced to the eternal word. John does it this way. I think for a reason. He's shaking us up. I love the way one commentator put it. To many, Jesus is not much more than an extremely gracious soul who generously spent himself for others, who, as a teacher on a moral religious matters, certainly ranks among the very brightest, but who was, of course, only a man of his own time and that much simpler time than ours. And so, in many ways and on many things, unfitted to be a guide for us among our complicated social and economic problems. Have mercy. (laughs) Isn't that pathetic? That's not who John is describing at all. No, he's the very almighty God. He's the one who, at his word, the universe became. And... At his word, there is action for the world to see. He is the very thought and mind of God. The word of God, alive on earth for us to see and experience. He's a mighty creator. The conqueror of hell and death and sin. Jesus made God visible. The word. He is equal with God. As it says in John 1, 1, again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing higher, nothing greater could have been said by the Apostle. Even though John knew unmistakably, unshakably, the certainty that there was only one, and there could be only one God, even though he knew that to his very core, nothing less than God would do for understanding this one, this word. It's kind of interesting, that verse there. You see it? The word was with God, and the word was God. You can't be with yourself unless you're a little different, you know. Uh, But John tells us that these two beings are equal, co-equal, in activity, in personality, in intelligence, There was not one more and one less. They were both equally supreme, sharing the glory and splendor of heaven's throne because the Word was God. The Word was God. It's an amazing mystery. We've not been able to figure it out ever since it became known. The Word, God. And yet, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's an astounding truth that's been a mystery throughout the ages, but we mustn't let this mystery cause us problems. It may be hard to wrap our mind around this truth, but we mustn't miss the blessing that comes from simply bowing before this One, this Word, and worshiping the infinite God who is beyond our understanding. That's what we need to do.
That's what we need to do. And John repeats this emphasis in the second verse where he says, he was in the beginning with God. God the Father, God the Son, the Word are not the same, but they belong together. They are with each other. They are distinct, but there is no disharmony. And his person is the same today as it always has been and always will be. He is endearingly, enduringly the same. This one who spoke and existence came into being. All things created beauty, form and function and came out of formlessness and, and emptiness and a void. In this, this is the same one, the same one that brought forth something from nothing is the same one who has power today, friend, to transform your life. Same one. This one who brought Abraham out of Ur, of the Chaldees. This one who promised this man Abraham to, to bless him, and he fulfilled those blessings. It's the same one who calls you, he calls me out to follow him and makes us promises with unfathomable blessings if we'll follow his path of life. This is the same one. This is the same one who, who delivered Israel from Egypt and with that titanic display of power. It, it's the same one that died for our sins on the cross to, to give us hope, hope of eternal life and a new life today. It's the same one who answered Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel when he prayed for fire to come down and the same one who answered his prayer right after that for, for rain to come. It's the same one that hears and answers your prayers when you lift up yours, your prayers to him. Do you know him? Do you know him, friend? This one, the awesome one, the almighty God. He died for you. He lives for you. He's interceding for you even now. Jesus Christ, it says in the book of Hebrews 13, 8, the same yesterday, today, today, and forever, he's the same. You can count on that. I don't know how many decades ago, quite a few now, I chose to seek him, like Abraham, like David, like Daniel, like Moses. I chose to seek him as an 18-year-old. I began a pilgrimage to know him, and I'm still on that pilgrimage. Are you on that with me? To know him? To know him? I... I don't know him as well as I know I will in the future, but I know him better than I did 40 years ago. I know him better than I did one year ago, but I don't know him as well as I want to know him. No, because knowing him is life. Life eternal. You know, I can say without hesitation, without qualification, that knowing him has been my joy and my reason for being ever since I met him. Would you join me? Would you join me in that quest to know him? You may have some preconceived ideas about him, some misconceptions about who Jesus is, sort of like from these counterfeit ideas that are swirling around, but John shows us who he is, and he's actually much, much bigger, much, much grander, much better than we can ever imagine. This one who is called the mighty God, 
who was God and is God and is the enduring God, is also the creator God, John tells us in these first verses. And all things came into being and were created by him, the word. That's what he says in John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Everything that has existence owes its existence to him, to the word. Putting this verse together with other verses in the Bible, other scriptures, it's apparent that there's three working together. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-creators. Creation wasn't a solitary act. The three were at work. At work. And they're still at work today for you, for me. You know, John here isn't merely talking about creation week. His words, when he says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, that talks about ongoing creation, not just those seven days at the beginning of time. John merely isn't thinking of creation week. His verse, those words, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, convey the thought of continuous creation. Everything around us today is because of him. Nothing has happened apart from him. Recently, I read a series of articles, several articles. There there have been a number of them lately about the human quest to detect signs across the cosmos. Maybe you've read some of them. Just this week, I read one. Uh, The field of what's called astrobiology. Isn't that an interesting word? Astrobiology. It's a broad-based study of the origins of life here and the search for life beyond Earth. Astrobiology, it's a burgeoning area of study. By the way, NASA sent up another planet hunter back in April, maybe you remember that, the TESS spacecraft, T-E-S-S. It launched, and it's an example of our interest, our thirst for knowing Life and knowing if there's more life. It's right now, Tess is prowling the skies for planets orbiting our nearest stars. That's what it's doing. It's, it's on a quest. The next night that it's clear outside, go outside and, and look up at the stars. And as you look up at the stars, you can know that there's something watching out there. It's watching all the stars that you can see and millions more, literally millions more. It's the most extensive (coughs) survey of its kind ever. And the goal is to find what's called exoplanets. Exoplanets. Those are planets outside our solar system. And um, they're looking for what they call Goldilocks, Goldilocks zone. That's an interesting word, isn't it? You know, Goldilocks. She wanted soup that was neither too hot nor cold, but just right. Well, that's what they're looking for in planets. They're looking for planets that are, they, they call it the Goldilocks zone, where, where it's neither too hot nor too cold for life to form. And so they're, they're doing that. And Paul Hertz, he's the NASA astrophysicist, director of this mission, he, he said that, he, that, that this test spacecraft is helping us answer whether we are alone in the universe or just lucky enough, quote, to have the best prime real estate in the galaxy. Interesting, huh? Interesting. The whole thing. Astrobiology, test spacecraft, 
a single search for a solitary clue of extraterrestrial life. It's part of our quest, isn't it? To know who, how, why, where. It's what we're, it's what we're about as human beings. But we don't need to look out there. John gives it to us in the first couple verses of the Gospel of John with a, a trumpet blast. And he says, Jesus is God. And he is the source of everything. Everything that is, from the smallest particle to the vastness of the universe. It's all because of him. Scientists now say that the universe stretches beyond what we can even penetrate with the most powerful, sophisticated telescopes. But every bit of that was created by and for the living word of God. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. He who hung the stars in space and called them all by name. Psalm 147, verse 4. Not only did he make the massive things like stars and galaxies and things of massive size, he also made the delicate, the small, the intricate things like, like snowflakes. Just this week, I was listening to NPR radio broadcast. And it had a story about a man by the name of Wilson Bentley. He was a farmer in Vermont, and he became the first person to photograph a snowflake. Hmm, isn't that interesting? The year was 1885, and he captured in his lifetime more than 5,000 images of snowflakes, and he perfected the process. He did it so well, he caught snowflakes on a black velvet, and then he somehow photographed them before they disappeared, you know? In fact, he did it so well that someone said that hardly anybody bothered to photograph snowflakes for almost 100 years. In fact, if you want to, you can go online and get his book on Amazon, Snow Crystals. It's still in print. You can still buy it. It's an extraordinary book. Of his 5,000 photographs, it's got 2,400 of these images still in publication. And Bentley, you may know this now, was the guy who said for the first time that no two snow crystals are exactly the same. Remember that? We say that, don't we? He was the guy who said that. And that thought captured the human imagination ever since. Next time it snows, it's going to be soon. Maybe we'll have a white Christmas. When it snows, think of that, that every one of those snowflakes is unique and different. Amazing. Amazing. You know, the creator God, from the big to the small, there's nothing beyond his power, nothing beyond his interest, nothing beyond his ability to fix or mend or heal or restore. I want to ask you, what's broken in your life? What's broken? What needs fixing today? Jesus Christ is the creator of life. He knows how to fix it. <laughs> he knows how to fix it. Let him take charge. He'll do it so well. Give him authority to put it right, and he'll do that for you. Paul says he's the living word. And he hovers over creation, giving creation his full attention. That's, a get, that's what I get out of this verse in Colossians 1, verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Then this last phrase, and in him 
all things hold together. In other words, he's watching out for everything. He's watching out for you with his unlimited power. The living God not only created things, he's sustaining all things by the power of his word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Earlier I mentioned that astrophysicists are looking for the Goldilocks effect, you know, neither hot nor cold. Earth-like planets that are in our galaxy that, that are neither too hot or too cold in this zone where maybe life could appear and they're looking. As it turns out, planet Earth <clears throat> possesses a whole lot of Goldilocks factors. You likely know that. Our, our planet is exactly in the right place for life, and it didn't just happen by happenstance. You know, for example, the Earth is tilted just slightly, just slight, but just enough to create four seasons in the year, and that is essential for life on planet Earth. You may not think it, but it is. If it weren't, this world would not be. But it's got to be exact, and that's exactly where it is. And then the moon. The moon, that's essential. It's just the right distance to give us ocean tides. And those ocean tides keep things moving and also stabilize our orbit. Both of these things, they have to be there for life to happen on planet Earth. And the oceans. Did you know that the oceans are just the right depth? If they were deeper or more shallow, it wouldn't work the way it does. And our atmosphere. Did you know our atmosphere is just the right um, thickness, you might say, just the right density so that we're not pebbled by rocks all the time coming at us from, from outer space. Who keeps all this stuff in order? <laughs> and that, that I've just mentioned a few. There are dozens of them. Who keeps the earth from being sucked into a black hole? Who keeps people standing upright when they're upside down? <laughs> I can't figure that who, who knows? Who knows these laws of nature? Who knows about gravity? Can you explain gravity to me? Some of you may be able to approach it, but it's, it's confounding. Who gives people the very breath to breathe? God. The answer is none other than the Word, the living Word, the Almighty God who was in the beginning with God and who is the same today for us. He's bigger than you think. He's bigger than you think and greater than you imagine. Nothing is beyond his ability. Nothing too hard for him to solve. Do you have some challenges? Is there a sin that needs to be forgiven? Is there a habit that needs to be broken? He can help. He's our power. All those things and immeasurably more. Everything else is within his power to help and save do you wonder whether God is sufficient for you, for your problems? Do you wonder if he knows about the challenges you're suffering? God is adequate. <laughs> He's adequate for you, for me, 
for anything I face, for anything I need. You know when you have the Red Sea in front of you and the mountains on one side and the desert on the other and the Egyptians coming behind you, when everything looks like it's bad, you know he's going to show himself in that moment to be far more abundantly beyond all than you can even ask or imagine. That's our God. That's the word. He's eternal. He's equal. He's enduring. He's the same. He's the source of life. He's the sustainer. And finally, there's one last thing, and John says it in verse number four. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. When John says that, he's saying something important. His life is our light. In other words, he is our reason for being. He is our purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us, gives us significance as human beings. Lest you have mistakenly followed that rabbit trail thinking that you had to add to your investment portfolio to experience life, lest you think that you need to have a new car or a new phone or new computer to have that real life, lest you think that you need more public recognition or reach more professional goals, lest you think you need to marry that perfect person or raise a model family in order to, to have that real life, John tells us, You want real life? You want real meaning in life? You want real purpose in life? You want real satisfaction? Fulfillment? Peace? Hope? Joy? Abundant life that lasts forever? The living word. The living word. The eternal word is the way, the truth, and the life. He's our light. Let's give ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for not ignoring us. You could have. Not abandoning us. You could have. But instead you stepped in toward us and became one of us in Jesus Christ, in order to save, to heal, to restore, to bring hope and life. This morning, we give our lives to you. Be our creator, our God, our Lord, our captain. We give you our lives now. Thank you for this season when we can celebrate the greatest gift given, Jesus Christ, the living word. In his name we pray. Amen.